The Speech Uncensored podcast is equipping you to create and run an aphasia support group in today's episode. My guest, Elizabeth Wykane, joins me to share how she founded an aphasia support group and the tools she implements to run it. I am your host, Leanne Porter, and I am so excited to share Elizabeth's story with you. Elizabeth has prepared a thorough discussion to share the structure and the activities that you can use to start an aphasia support group. So without further delay, let's dive in. All right. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? Hi, Leanne. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I am so glad to have you on the podcast because I'm really excited about our topic today. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're willing to let me on and just jammer about all this stuff. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I have to confess, like, I'm totally like self-serving in this because when you were like, yeah, I want to talk about aphasia support groups. I was like, you do? Perfect. Because I've been really wanting to start one and I need to learn how to do that. So (laughs) yeah, that's usually the response from a lot of people. (laughs) Yes, this is golden. I'm really thrilled. Um, All right. Well, before we just jump in, because I get so excited, I just want to like dive right into the topic. Um, Elizabeth, uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. And before I do that, I'd like to make a quick disclaimer that all the opinions stated and shared in this episode do not reflect those of the organization um, they're associated with. Okay, now (laughs) let's go. Let's do this. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm Elizabeth, and I'm a medical speech language pathologist. I work in the Hudson Valley in New York, which uh, for people who are unfamiliar with New York State, um, anything above New York City, <laughs> um, I'm in the Apple Country. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, mountains and villages, and then little towns. Um, I work in a, what they call a community hospital, but it's within a much larger hospital system. We actually have um, over 10 uh, hospital locations and facilities associated with our organization, and it's doing really awesome, big things. Um, part of my job in the hospital I work in, it covers a lot of different settings. So I work mostly acute care, so I am right on the medical floors. Um, I cover ICU, our CCU, and PCU, uh, the medical med surge floors, the acute rehab unit that we have, um, it's an 18 bed unit. And I also do outpatient services, um, when they're needed for our adults. Um, sometimes I could, you know, cover a pediatric case if needed, uh, especially for voice. And I also do home care because our hospital has a home care agency that, um, we work through. So, I get to see everything from start to finish. Elizabeth, I just do not see how it's possible to cover all of those areas in the span. I mean, obviously you can't do all of those in a, in a day. Like how many different levels of care do you work on in a day? <laughs> uh, I definitely do all of them in a day. No, you don't. Uh, Stop it. You're yes. stressing me out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> most, <laughs> most days I, I do all settings. Um, uh, let's see most recently say like this month, for example, two of my days of out of the week, I start an outpatient, see a few patients. I go to the hospital, see an ICU patient or whatever is needed. Uh, maybe an acute rehab in the afternoon or another outpatient, uh, or any of the medical surge floor patients that need to be seen and then end the day with a home care visit. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a specialty mostly in dysphagia, including fees. Um, I'm a certified brain injury specialist and I won my first ACE award this year. Um, I'm pursuing a lot of advanced, uh, education right now, and I'm interested in, uh, medical device innovation. It's kind of a side project, you know, in all my spare time. (laughs) For a spare time, my hiney girl. I'm like... (laughs) Just don't know what to think right now. I don't know what to think. <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming. I think I've just gotten used to that new normal. So, all right, Elizabeth. So, um, tell me more about our topic today. 
Yeah. So I wanted to come on and talk about uh, aphasia support groups because I think I can call mine successful so far. Um, and I just wanted to share what I have um, with everybody. So I co-founded uh, the support group uh, in April 2018. Um, we've done 17 months total. We, we skipped December because the holidays are a little hard for people, um, both us and the group members. So uh, up at this point, we've done 17 months, so 17 groups. Um, and it was really a brainchild of mine in conjunction with um, some colleagues that, you know, we saw a need in the community for it. Uh, there were stroke support groups, but those are more specific to all di disciplines like social work and PT and OT and MDs will all be involved in maybe whatever that stroke support group topic is. And there wasn't something specific for language disorders in the community. Um, you know, in the region there was, but in our immediate community, there wasn't. And I just saw a need for continued service after we discharge our patients because we all get to that point where we have to discharge uh, <laughs> because, you know, we can't, we can't justify this continued maintenance sometimes for these Medicare patients with aphasia. Um, and we dig deep and we find new goals and, but eventually you do reach an impasse. And uh, I wanted to fill that gap um, and provide something that was free of cost and, um, really needed. So we began the group um, after probably one to two years of, of asking and thinking and how can we do this and, and why do we need to do this and um, just the logistics. And in a big organization, that takes time um, because there's a lot of moving parts. And um, it's especially hard to justify something that um, doesn't increase revenue. So then you have to be creative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now, Elizabeth, what time of day do you host your aphasia support group? Mm, we we gave a lot of thought to that. Ours is uh, the fourth Tuesday of every month at 3.30 to 4.30. And right now it's only an hour long. Uh, it might be a two hour long meeting, you know, in the future. It depends on the needs of the group. But uh, we, we settled on that because we didn't want an evening where people would be, you know, scared to drive, especially more elderly people or people who are reliant on caregivers for travel. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted a daytime, not at rush hour. We chose the day of the week so that it didn't conflict with um, there's a university across the river from us that does aphasia support groups through their communication sciences and disorders program. And theirs is on a different day. And we wanted members to be able to go to both. Mm. So we made sure to stagger it so that the people were getting every opportunity that they could. Okay. Yeah. And is that during your working hours? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, that's part of the logistical, you know, issues with um, when you're working under a large organization is how do we do this? Um, especially how do we do it during working hours? So uh, yep, it's we we don't schedule our rehab patients at that time. Um, if we're very busy, um, and I say we because it's my colleague and I that run it along with our graduate students um, from our sister college that's associated with our organization. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really nice. We've got two SLPs and an SLP graduate student. And if it's the hospital is very busy and we cannot get away for the group, we definitely wouldn't staff both of our SLPs at the support group. We would obviously have somebody seeing patients at that mm -hmm. time. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. I got you, I know, a little bit off track, so I'm going to let you. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, supporting information for um, how to really create one of these when you're, you're faced with, um, you know, higher ups in your company or your organization or just yourself with, well, how can I afford to do this? Why would I do this? Um, and the, the premise is obvious to any of us who are in this caring profession of, well, we want to help our people. Um, you know, they're not just our patients. They're not just, um, you know, part of a business. They, they're, they're human beings and they're real people to us and they, they stick with us. Um, especially the speech pathologists and all our compassionate nature. So, um, you know, we can turn to the research a bit 
Um, there was a study um, promoting social connections in synchronous telepractice, aphasia communication group. It wasn't necessarily a um, support group, but same kind of idea. It was done in 2018. And, and they showed that, you know, these types of things do improve language and reduce social isolation. And at the end of the day, that that's the end goal. We want our people with aphasia to continue or improve their ability to engage socially in their environment and with any communication partner they come across. And we want them to then carry over their language and the strategies and the work, the hard work that they've done in therapy. Um, there was a study done in 2012, uh, the importance of aphasia community programs in supporting self-determination in persons with aphasia. Um, and they, they did show there were results of improved self-determination um, at the end of the, the day. Uh, um, in 2010, uh, Roberta Elman had a study, uh, the increased popularity of aphasia groups and some reasons why. Uh, and we really want to know why there has been an upkick in the last two decades of aphasia group. And obviously it's because we're in a booming profession. We're on a big upswing <laughs> in speech pathology, especially medical speech pathology. There's a big justification for it in the world where we have baby boomers aging. And if you look at statistics, we have, um, you know, a growing population of people who are going to be suffering from strokes. And that is the number one cause of aphasia in America. Um, so th this study by Elman in 2010 um, had a, a few results. Um, their aphasia support groups um, and reasons why people wanted to do them um, were are the basis for my goals of it as well. To increase communication interaction, um, have a more natural communicative interactions resulting from various communication partners, increase psychosocial functioning because of the creating a supportive environment, um, improve life participation, mm -hmm. uh, enhance and, and open opportunities for them to establish new and positive identities as people with aphasia mm -hmm. and reduce the disconnect between them and society. Uh, so, you know, all these things um, are in the literature and sometimes are those those soapboxes that you can stand on to try to justify it to your programs and your administrators. Um, there's similar programs that have been done across the country. Uh, Lafayette Rehab Hospital in Indiana has one, University of Chicago Medicine in Illinois, um, Turo College in Bayshore, New York, uh, near me, um, has a program, and then Burke Rehab in White Plains, New York, has a program. So we really want to, you know, bring the support for creating an aphasia group um, into the money side of things too, because there's so many people in larger organizations that their job is to look at revenue. And yes, you know, the hospitals and medicine and insurance, unfortunately, has gone more business um, in America. It's, if, if anybody is aware of society nowadays in America, they know that that's the route that it's going, unfortunately. And then there's the rest of us that are trying to keep it as basic human need. Um, so what we really justified to do our aphasia support group was we're using this as community outreach organizations love things that can be identified as community outreach mm -hmm. projects. Um, yeah. and we're, we look at, does this increase referrals? Well, you're bringing in patients who might be former patients who also might be patients from other organizations and hospitals and, and rehab facilities in your area, but they're bringing them under your roof now. So we're increasing yeah, yeah referrals. Um, so we're bringing patients into our hospital um, who might be from sister organizations or, or completely different organizations and rehab facilities in our area, but now they're under our roof and they're seeing what we have to offer and they're getting to know us as, as service providers and their families come with them and then they see what we have to offer. Um, and just that exposure is really good. Um, we've also met several people through our group who said, oh, I, I just moved here. Um, I'm from out of state and I didn't I didn't know. So my son Googled aphasia support group and found you. And it's like, well, great. <laughs> and lo and behold, they're looking actually for another round of therapy. So, mm -hmm. hi, nice to meet you. We're here to provide you with free access to aphasia 
um, strategies and, and opportunities for you to communicate. But yes, we do also offer services and we'd be happy to evaluate you and, you know, help you in any way you can. So there is that piece to it. Um, and at the end of the day, it truly is the responsibility of larger organizations um, to support the community. So you, you can kind of swing things whichever way you need them to go, depending on who is in a power seat to allow this to happen, you know, and give you that one hour a month <laughs> and clinical support and the time and energy needed to create a list of group members and make sure you make phone calls out to them and remind them of the group meeting. So, yeah. um, yeah. Cool. So are we ready to transition over into the skills that SLPs need? Um, because it's going to be slightly different. Obviously, we're used to doing like one-on-one -on -one sessions with folks, but now we're working with a group with variable skill levels, motivation levels, and things like that. So what kinds of skills do SLPs need um, to have a successful aphasia group? Yeah, um, I think it is important to have a, definitely a leader um, amongst the colleagues that are providing this support or um, at least have a, a quite a bit of experience in uh, techniques because you will be applying them in an informal manner. You know, the, the nice thing about these groups is you don't have to sit there and take data. Um, <laughs> you don't have to, you know, keep in mind specific goals for each person. It's more of the group goal for that day. But as a clinician, you are always keeping that in mind of, you know, well, what is the goal here and how are we um, achieving that goal today or tomorrow or next month. Um, so definitely need the clinical skills in terms of language therapy approaches, um, because they will help in the service delivery that you are doing in that support group. Um, just general skills in terms of framing a group as well. Um, I personally hadn't done many group therapies. Um, but I, I did a lot of research in the beginning on how to actually frame a support group. And I looked to um, mental health counseling and substance abuse counseling and how they put together an hour long support group and, and what kinds of things they used. So um, I also did research on counseling techniques. Um, luckily, I, I had a counseling course in my graduate work. Um, and, and for support groups of this nature with people who are with impaired language, you're really looking at person-centered approaches, you know, the work of Carl Rogers um, and the three main pillars of that to accept the, per the people involved, to support them and to encourage them. Um, that's really all we're looking at here, you know, making sure that we have unconditional positive regard for those people who are with you, that you are authentic and they feel the sincerity coming from you. Um, you know, when you're supporting them, you're really just using those active listening techniques. It's something that any experienced clinician knows to do um, in their therapies, you know, um, trying to reframe a concern on their part back to allow them to try to problem solve the solution. Um, and then encourage them to have that self-analysis, self-awareness. So if, if a group member does have a question, we don't provide the answer. That, that's not our job. We're here to help them come up with the answer or try to obtain some advice from somebody else that has the same perspective as them, or at least more similar than us. Um, we never presume to know what they're feeling. Um, I always say, um, I can't possibly have any idea how this must feel for you, but I can um, empathize with you and I can hold your hand and I can be here from a professional standpoint to um, help guide you in figuring this out in your new life. So if someone says, oh, I'm having trouble with, you know, ordering food in a restaurant, typical, you know, that's kind of a cookie cutter, <laughs> you know, um, people with aphasia have difficulty with um, things that are more demanding and, and questions asked of them. Um, we usually ask them, well, what have you tried so far yourself? What, what have you done so we can help you problem solve this? Um, and we still don't say, well, you should do this. You know, our next step would be, well, what can others here in our group offer from their experience to help you, John, with your, you know, 
uh, difficult situation with ordering the food in the restaurant. Um, what works and what doesn't? You know, has anybody else had this trouble? And what did they find that was definitely something that didn't help them? Um, and then we always highlight that everybody's aphasia is unique to them. And uh, no two person's experience is going to be exactly the same. And all you can do is try to move through your experience, understand that you might have that feeling of failure sometimes, um, but that we've all been there to some extent. Yeah. That's really good. Thanks. You've definitely done your homework. I'm like really proud of you. <laughs> Such good stuff. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> no, like when earlier when you were talking, you were saying that, you know, you and your colleagues spent like a year or two of planning, talking, you know, working this out. And I can see like what you were doing during that time. Like, it's not just like, Hey, I have this idea. I want to do this. Like you've got to know once you get approval for the group and it can happen and you've got patients for it, like how to communicate with them in a slightly different way. I mean, these are, well, and it's, you, I also was going to make sure I hit home at the end of this episode was, but I'll say it now you can make every plan and every effort on your part too. And it could go completely South. Um, you could end up with 15 people that day, or you could end up with two people that day. Um, and you could have an idea for your activities or, you know, what kind of counseling technique that you just read about and you wanted to see if you could apply and it's not going to happen at all. So mm-hmm. you have to go with the flow because, um, no amount of preparation sometimes even helps with what you're going to face that day. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the next idea, um, how do you, speaking of planning, how do you structure, um, the plan for that hour? I mean, it's not just completely loosey goosey. You, you have something established. Um, can you talk about what you, how do you use? Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, printed my outline, my agenda that I use for every meeting. I, we make multiple copies so that whoever SLP or graduate student is there that day has their copy of what the agenda is going to look like. It has the date, the time, you know, expected number of attendees that day. And, and we have basically a five part outline. So first part is gathering and social time, you know, just the minute they arrive to the room, everybody grabbing a seat, sitting down, um, we greet them, we thank them for coming. Um, we make sure to encourage the newcomers to sign in on our checklist um, with their name, telephone number and email address. Usually they're with a caregiver. So if they have trouble writing, someone helps them fill it out or we help them when we can. Um, and we always make sure that no one is, you know, mandated or required to to leave their contact information if they don't feel comfortable. This is all optional. Um, we always formally mention to people as they come in and when they leave that they can pick up the handouts um, where we have them on the table um, and the location of the restrooms, the water fountains, when the meeting starts and ends. Um, we always say, you know, if you're all finished checking in, we're going to talk, we're going to share we might get a little personal. You're welcome to share as much or as little as you're able to, or as you want. Um, and we do set kind of some ground rules. So, um, you know, we might have a lot of people that want to share today or you might not, but keep in mind that everybody's here to, um, maybe get something out of today or maybe give something from themselves today. So make sure we all step up onto the stage and try something and then step down and allow somebody else to participate too. And as the SLP, whoever the lead is that day, um, has to have that, that authority in the room to keep the group moving forward, keep them on pace, um, and make sure somebody doesn't monopolize because, um, I think we've all had those patients who are, are shy or not able to participate or don't want to. And then you have the patient or the, the group member that maybe was a patient, maybe you know them or not, but they are very chatty <laughs> and they don't have that social communication awareness of, oh, I need to stop now and allow somebody else to talk. So um, we do have to be in there as part of that. Uh, the second, second part of the group is an icebreaker. Um, we vary this by month. Um, usually a very simple game name, you know, a concrete category member. Um, maybe we'll have something printed out and we encourage someone to read from it. Um, but as part of this, we all take turns 
we ask that you introduce yourself because saying your name is very important. Um, and that's their time to share if they have something new that they, they would like to mention. Our third part is actually our communication effectiveness activity. So we do choose a structured activity to do each time. Like I said, sometimes it doesn't work out though. <laughs> Best laid plans and <laughs> it could all fall apart because somebody's having a very emotional day and it just, it turns into something that you didn't expect. But, um, you know, we, we do different games that are similar to activities that we've done in therapy. Um, we usually like to encourage things that are tangible, like, um, board games and, and different things that have language stimulating undertones and really encourage them to do this because that's the thing that might carry over to the home. So if they leave group that day, they might go home. And then by Friday that week say, Oh, well, we did this thing on Tuesday at my aphasia group. And now I can do it with my family because it was relatable and functional. Um, the fourth part of our group is open discussion time. We always like to formally leave a portion of time, maybe 10 minutes or more. Um, if anybody has something of interest to them or they want to ask questions. Um, and if they don't, we usually come up, come up with something off the cuff. <laughs> um, yeah, a couple of years of this and you get kind of flexible. Um, so we recently um, explored the option of music therapy. So we kind of had this combination. It was a communication effectiveness, but it was also open discussion time about, oh, has anybody tried this? And what is it like when you hear music? Do you want to sing along? Can you sing along? Um, what's hard about it? You know, did you like music before your stroke? Did you not? You know, um, there's a lot that can come up there. And then the fifth part of our group is the closing. We make sure we give about 10 or 15 minutes because we tend to run at least five or 10 minutes over our uh, group time. And we summarize what happened during the meeting, um, ask them how they felt, if they feel like today's meeting helped them, um, what we plan to move forward with, or if anybody has requests for what to do in the next group, or um, if there's a holiday coming up, um, that sort of thing. What new strengths um, should we explore in our group members? Um, and then we announce the next month's date and time, make sure that they're, they come roundabout to that. Uh, make sure that they are aware again of the handouts that we provide in the room. And then, you know, hugs and warm wishes and send them on their way and hope to see them next month. I feel like that's an excessively rewarding hour just on the part of the commission. Yeah. Like you derive like a ton of just like warm, fuzzy feelings about like, Oh yeah. Continuing on. Yeah. A facial support group days are my most emotional days. Cause um, usually I've done five other things earlier that day and had probably a difficult client. Um, you know, you, most days, at least there's one client or patient that's, you know, a tricky case of some sort. And then we go to this and it's, yeah, it's really rewarding. You, you come across lots of surprises and they're usually wonderful. So it is, it's very rewarding. That's right. Um, how do you utilize your graduate students in this capacity? Yeah, it's so great. We're, we're so blessed to have a graduate student every semester. Um, and they are full of creative ideas. So we really try to incorporate them in helping make the agenda. Um, the agenda itself mostly stays, you know, those five parts that I mentioned, but in terms of the communication effectiveness activity and open discussion time, we ask the graduate student a week or two ahead of time, like, we'll try to think of something you'd like to do. And um, if you have any ideas, if you read something interesting, let us know and we'll do it. And it's fun because it's their time to experiment. And like I said, you don't have to take data and you're just able to focus on the needs of the group. And, you know, we sit in round table style. So um, we try to disperse the graduate student between the members along with the rest of us. So, you know, we're not all clustered together, not like a lecture situation. Um, and uh, we just mostly try to encourage the graduate student to really participate as much as they can. Um, 
but that's nerve wracking for them. They, <laughs> they don't have much experience so far, even with the patients one-on-one, let alone now you've got nine people in front of you <laughs> with aphasia and they're looking to you to be the expert and give them advice that day on something they're struggling with. And the graduate students tend to go, oh. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but it's, it's a nice opportunity to, to give them that space. Um, and they really help us out too. All right. So um, what kind of goals do you have um, for a successful session? Yeah, we, we'd like to think about the goals for the people of, you know, what it's whatever they want to get out of it, but especially over the course of several aphasia groups, we, we always want them to try coming at least three or four times because one day might not be a great representation of, you know, their experience. So we're like, if today wasn't fulfilling for you, we do encourage you to come back next month because it might be a completely different dynamic. Um, but we want them to be able to, you know, convey messages by any means, right? Supported communication approaches um, and, and you know, writing, um, reading a message, uh, being able to speak, type, whatever their method is. We want them to be able to have this opportunity to do that. Um, want them to initiate communication. Um, we hope that the group has that goal of helping everybody there to help understand aphasia um, and how it, it affects everyone differently. Um, we like to keep the goal in mind of supporting others um, with sensitivity because it's such a fragile uh, trauma that has happened and it affects each person differently, you know, the family member and the person with aphasia yeah um make sure they have uh ways of dealing with communication challenges and at the end of the group at the end of the day that they have increased confidence even if it's just from they feel more empowered because they're educated about their aphasia or what aphasia truly is because they haven't been told <laughs> previously they just know that they can't get their words out i've had a lot of group members who were like i didn't even know this is what it was called mm -hmm. Um, and that's, it's so sad, but you know, it's like, okay, good. Well, we're here to empower you. This is what it's called. These are the types of aphasia and that gives them confidence. And with that confidence comes increased communication. Now, earlier yeah. you mentioned, um, supported communication. Can you go a little bit more into depth on that and how you implement it in your groups? Yeah. So there's many uh, factors to this as like a, a therapy approach, but it definitely applies in a communication support group like this, um, you know, where you, you teach the person with aphasia and their caregiver, if they're there, to use any means necessary to communicate. Um, because the important part is getting your message across or understanding the message that's being told to you. And we want to start with, it doesn't matter what method you use. We want the concept. Um, and then you work on it and you'll get there and you'll find the, the method that works best for you, whether, you know, um, it's going slower or giving someone extra time. We want to make sure that they eliminate the background noise in their environment. So our aphasia group is in a closed room with carpeting, um, there's blinds on the windows. It's pretty good acoustics and it's a bit secluded from the rest of the hospital. It's easy to get to, but it's, it's definitely down a hallway where people don't usually go. So we don't have to deal with a lot of extraneous noise in our, in our context. Um, we make sure that everybody knows to get the person's attention first. We make sure someone, if they're going to share something, we identify them again by name. So if I had someone named Susie, uh, and it looked like to me, she wanted to say something, but she couldn't find the right opportunity. Um, I help support them by identifying something, you know, for her first. So Susie, I see that you might want to share something. Um, am I, am I wrong? Would you like to say something? Uh, go ahead, Susie. You know, I make sure I say her name a couple of times. So we're identifying, um, who's talking and then they feel more confident in, okay, I have the attention of the people. I do have a thought and I'm going to try to say it. Um, we can, we confirm, you know, their message. Is it, is it coming across the way that they mean it? 
Um, are they understanding what somebody else said? So in terms of, you know, supportive communication and that strategy, it's we rephrase or reframe it for them and confirm that that's correct. So if Susie says something, uh, you know, a one to two sentence long message about how she feels on a topic, but she had, you know, three paraphasic errors in her phrases and, and people weren't understanding it. I'll try to say, okay, Susie, I, I heard you say this part, but did you mean this or did you mean this? Can you help us clarify? And and then that person has the opportunity to nod their head or shake their head no or write it down um, so we can empower them to keep communicating in that way. And and then the other group members see what that interaction is like. like oh, somebody else needed that help. Sometimes I need that help too. Oh, wow. She, she needed the same help that I sometimes get. Um, we make sure everybody, you know, remembers the the key things of using simple sentences. Try not to make your messages overcomplicated. Um, like I said before, making sure you go slowly, not to rush out your messages. Give yourself and your listeners time. Um, and and using drawings and using keywords are always important. So we incorporate that too by using visual aids. We have a giant computer screen. We're so lucky to have this like big monitor, and we can we can plug powerpoints and we watch videos and we use visual aids to um, be able to help people in that way. Or if we're doing a, a communication activity with you know category naming or or personally relevant vocabulary um like that's you know utilized in the life participation approach we put up you know a big word document like let's all type our thoughts out and i'm gonna type it and everybody else tell me what i'm typing you know so very nice those are excellent examples thank you um, earlier when you were mentioning your um five points of your agenda you talked about having handouts in the room um, can you dive into a little more detail on that about like what typically you might have out? Yeah. Yeah. We always have um, one is our, our staple. Um, we always bring little laminated cards that are the um, uh, aphasia empowerment cards. I kind of call them or aphasia identity cards. It's that blue and gold card um, for the National Aphasia Association. It says I have aphasia and, and what it is. And, you know, those those cues of, you know, please speak slowly and clearly ask me yes, no questions so that if someone is without that advocacy, um, that we provide that for them. So we always have that access. Um, we have a lot of handouts or articles that might have, you know, just recently come out, like the article about music therapy. Um, we'll print that and say, you'll take this home, you know, if you can't read it, have somebody read it to you or, or practice reading it out loud with your family. But it's about a topic we think might be interesting to you. Um, uh, I am aphasia.org uh, from New York. Um, they have a document that's the aphasia bill of rights. It's beautiful. And it's got these really great visual, you know, picture identification associated with each part of their aphasia bill of rights. So we always provide that. Um, we have lists. Uh, some of them come from, from Megan Sutton and Tactus um, Therapy uh, that are the top, you know, 10 or top 20 applications for people with aphasia or just, you know, communication disorders. Um, or some, we'll compile a new list of apps that we've come across that are very helpful for cognitive communication impairment. Um, aphasia New York city website has handouts on with pictures on what is aphasia. And we always like to print those out. Just, we kind of bombard people with <laughs> these handouts. Um, and we make new copies every month, but we're like, we don't care if you throw them out when you get home, but take them <laughs> with you, you know, bring that, bring that opportunity. <laughs> you can use it for kindling when you get home if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just a lot of the, the resources that are out there because people don't know it. It's all about self-advocacy. And, and like I said, sometimes people don't even know it's called aphasia and they're like, oh, well, my daughter thought I should come to this. <laughs> it's like, yes, because you have this and we yeah. want to help. You. So, <laughs> um, you know, they don't know about the websites, um, you know, all the time and, and the local resources. Um, sometimes we bring a little outline of a few different things, either, you know, a video. Um, that we found on YouTube that they could watch when they get home. Um, that Brooks Rehab did this great self-advocacy video of called What is Aphasia? Words, Not Intellect. And they had their people with aphasia, you know, record this video of them 
um, talking about their aphasia. It was great. Um, so we showed that in the group and then we sent the link with them um, or an article that was in the New York Times about reversing the damage of a stroke or a book that came out by Ted Baxter. It's called Relentless, How a Massive Stroke Changed My Life for the Better. So we want to make sure that these people have access to these resources um, where they might not hear about them otherwise. Very nice. Excellent. All right. So now I want to know all about the kinds of activities that you do. Um, give me some examples, please. Pretty, 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 please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I said, we like to do tangible things. And <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story because I, uh, I really wanted to make things more interactive. And I thought, well, let's do some painting because I had just been to a paint and sip party. And if anybody's been to those, <laughs> I think they're really fun. You you paint and you drink wine and you call yourself Matisse at the end of the day. But it's <laughs> I was like, let's do some painting. So I brought in small canvases and paintbrushes. And um, my colleague had all these acrylics and or uh, no, it was my graduate student. She had all these acrylic paints from, from her crafting and painting days. It was fantastic and like half the group members were like this is terrible we don't like this <laughs> so um you know it might it might have just been our group so i i tried to do it because i felt it was a it was a good step by step activity um we had directions printed out it was no more than a four step sequence um and we encouraged each group member to read aloud the directions first um it also opened up opportunity for them to request an answer um, and really engage socially in communication with each other. So we we kind of set ground rules. Um, these are the paints. They're all in the middle of the table. Uh, if you need the red color and you can't reach it, I want you to ask the person across the table from you by name to hand you the color you need so that they didn't just point or use gestures or feel lost. We wanted to provide that supported you know, environment for practicing this. So they had to say, you know, uh, John, can you please hand me the red paint? And, and if they couldn't do that and all they could say was red, please. Great. Then let's practice that. Um, so it was brilliant in my mind, but it didn't come out that <laughs> way. Um, <laughs> they just didn't go for it. And we went, okay, we'll never paint again then. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we have lots of, of games that we use in therapy. Um, there's this little card game called Anomia. Um, and if we have a large enough group to do that, we will. It's a phonemic based or a grapheme based game. Uh, we'll do things that involve reading. Like I said, where, you know, if we're going to do something interactive, we print the instructions and encourage somebody to volunteer to read one of the lines or, or the whole thing. Um, we'll do some sing song and melodic intonation or just music therapy approaches to things. So um, last month, uh, my colleague and her graduate student had this wonderful activity. The names of very common songs onto a piece of paper and we put them in a cup. You drew from the cup, you said your name and you read the title of the song. If you felt like you could do it more challenging, you didn't want to just read the title maybe could you describe to us what's the song what the song is about or tell us the artist instead so the activities can change depending on the the abilities of the person and that's what that's what you really want to get at no matter what you're going to do can you modify it in the moment to be um simpler for that person or can you modify it to be challenging for that person so that they get more out of that activity and then once we all identified the song and the artist we would sing it out and we use the table to you know give that rhythm support so it was really fun <laughs> Uh, we've talked about, um, uh, book clubs. Um, we haven't quite gotten that one off the ground yet, but, um, you know, seeing if they wanted to read the book, um, by Ted Baxter about aphasia and how stroke changed, uh, his life for the better, and then come back the following month and talk about it. But it seemed a little challenging in the moment. Um, and, even just as simple as, well, can somebody else bring in something that's important to them? Like bring in a, a ticket from a recent event that you went to, even if it's your granddaughter's recital. And let's talk about that. Or bring in pictures of your family. And can everybody bring in at least one picture of one family member and then tell us about them? So 
you know, a lot of life participation approach um, thoughts and, and values behind what we do um, and just integrating it into the group and whoever is there that day. Yeah, I really like that last one. It kind of just reminds me of like an adult focused show and tell, like bring something important to you and then, you know, tell us why, what, you know, sentiment or importance this object has in your life. And yeah. to me, that would be so fun because we do work with, you know, the older population, like it would be something, you know, maybe from their, their past. So like almost like a historical item that has like, I don't know, some kind of importance to our, our history. I oh, just think it's really cool. That's such a great idea. I'll do that next month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bring in a handheld object that you, you know, if you, if your house was burning down, what would you grab? Yeah. You know, and tell us and then, about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Those things, you know, and they're, those are fun to do in therapy too. So it's really carrying over the, the stuff in therapy, you know, into the group setting, but there's just so much more opportunity for, for growth there because, you know, we try to be the quiet people, you know, other than framing the group, we're trying to hold back. We're trying not to talk so that the group members can talk. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, Elizabeth, this has just been incredible. Um, we are narrowing down on time. So okay. what are some of the most important things um, you want to add in? Yeah. So I just have a few final thoughts then. Um, it's the, having an aphasia support group opens up opportunities for interdisciplinary support here. Um, like I mentioned music therapy a couple of times. I'm in the process of trying to actually obtain a music therapist, even if it's a graduate student from a local program at a university, um, to come in and, and get this really awesome experience of doing music therapy with people with aphasia. I just think there's mm -hmm. so much room for growth there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, that's my current project. Um, and, you know, we've, we've talked about having other therapists come in and talk from a physical therapy perspective or an occupational therapy perspective on, on how to help people with aphasia um, and have neurologists come in and talk to them. But it's a little dicey and proceed with caution because when you have a doctor come in, um, people either freeze up or they want to ask a million questions and doctors are bound by, you know, similar code of ethics to us. And it's, you know, they don't want to advise people necessarily because they're not there as their doctor. Um, so those ones are a bit tricky to, to manage. Um, it's a really big factor to keep in mind is cultural competency and acknowledging the differences and the different personalities and cultures that might be at your group. Uh, so we might have international um, people who I, I, we have somebody from a European country that's in our group right now and she has an accent and she has different, you know, cultural norms. And um, it's so fun to learn about, you know, her perspective versus an American perspective. Um, but we definitely have to have that, that um, cultural respect at all times. Uh, the, the last thing I'd really want to mention is uh, how do you actually obtain people to come to your aphasia support group? Because <laughs> the biggest question people, yeah, usually it's, oh, how do I get the people? <laughs> um, certainly we do have a, a list of former patients and we, you know, try to encourage them to come. But how do you reach the people in your community? So you, you work with marketing in your organization, however big or small it is, to um, have flyers or post on Facebook pages or post on the hospital website or community resources, Office of the Aging, um, things like that. Reaching out to local skilled nursing facilities and say, you know, when you're discharging your patient to home, can you give them this flyer? Because um, if they have a phase they might want to follow up with this kind of support. Um, and um, we also have marketing departments, you know, send cover letters and flyers out to local doctor's offices because um, that might be a good line of, of beginning to um, refer patients to come to support groups. Very nice. That is so comprehensive. This has been so good, Elizabeth. All right, so I think we're ready to wrap up, Elizabeth. This has been super helpful, like really incredible. Thank you so much for sharing this process that 
you and your colleagues have gone through and it's so organized. Oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm I'm so glad to share what we've what we've been through cuz uh nobody should have to reinvent the wheel and uh, start from ground 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 one. Um on doing this. Um, there's lots of resources out there, but there's to a point also not, um, <laughs> and each person's is unique. So, yeah. well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you sending me, um, a lot of these resources that you've drawn from so that people can check them out on the show notes. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again. And we're all done. All right. <laughs> I'd like to thank Elizabeth so much for the amazing like structure and content that she brought to today's discussion. It is awesome. She, her and her colleagues have done so much work to create this, to bring this baby to life, to run it. And now over a year in, she's able to reflect on it, to learn and to grow from it and wants to share it with everybody so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So that is awesome. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're my hero. Also, can you please not like alternate between so many different disciplines in one day? Like I can't handle that. You're stressing me out, sister. I need you to do less so that I don't feel so bad about myself. <laughs> Just kidding, girl. You do you. You do you. It's obviously working, so please continue. <laughs> All right, guys. Elizabeth and I have um, gathered a bunch of amazing resources for you to dig in deeper and learn more about this topic and how to initiate and have an aphasia support group. So check out those resources in the show notes at speechuncensored.com. Next week, I'm having Julie Fector on the podcast, and she's going to get passionate about Parkinson's disease. Um, this is her thing. This is her life right now, and she is here to tell you about it. And I am so delighted that she came on the podcast to share about it. So I think if you guys tune in next week, you're really going to enjoy it. Um, next up, I would just really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes and you subscribed to the podcast. Um, you don't have to, but I'd be delighted if you did. <laughs> All right, guys, now get out there, nourish that brain, and I want you to flourish. Go be awesome. Thanks. <laughs>